Hello and welcome to the third season of Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people who live, work and create in Somerset. My name is Lewis Webb and each week I get to share the stories of some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. This season we'll also be showcasing some of the area's musical talent, with tracks from local artists being played in each podcast. This week we've got the latest release from Weston's most eclectic band, Tenpenny Fools. As ever, your comments, reviews and feedback are always appreciated, and if you'd like to send us a message, you can email hello at somersetstories.com. My guest this week is one of Somerset's most critically acclaimed and globally exhibited photographers, Venetia Dearden. Whether it's capturing intimate portraits or directing major ad campaigns, Venetia's style reflects the fundamentals of our behaviour as humans and the importance of storytelling and relationships. She's published and exhibited photographs which define Somerset, from its families living off the land to global superstars performing at Glastonbury. Venetia, welcome to Somerset Stories. Thank you, Lewis. It's lovely to be here. I want to clear the air, first and foremost, because 12 years ago, you published a book of photography and it was called Somerset Stories, Five Penny Dreams. Um, We're going to spend some time talking about that later, but I feel I should apologise for stealing that name for this little podcast. So I hope that you'll forgive us for that. Oh my gosh, I don't, no apology needed at all. It's, it's a wonderful, a wonderful word, isn't it? Somerset Stories and it's lovely for it to be used in so many ways. You are born and bred Somerset. You grew up kind of around the levels, is that right? I grew up in East Pennard, ah. um, which I think is not very far from you. It is so. not, it is not at all. Had your family always been based in that area? So actually, I was actually born in Brecon. And we had a, I had a couple of years up here. Then my mother inherited a rather beautiful estate in East Pennard. And so we moved down there. So my mother's side has been there from 200 years. My mother's family's been there. Is it a large family that you come from? I know you've got a brother. I've got three brothers and um, we are, two of us are still living there. The other two are hoping to join the West Country soon. Um, but we are a large family and a close family. And um, between us, I think there's... Um, 10 children at the moment under seven who are all cousins but um, no we, we all love it down there. With all those those brothers <laughs> growing up what kind of trouble did you get into together? Well it's an interesting one because we I mean we grew up in a house when my mother inherited the house they very quickly had to be quite resourceful and run lots of different businesses from the home but the main business was that we had a language school so our holidays were spent with lots of other teenagers all living in the house with us and we were very lucky to have lots of land around the house so building dens riding bikes um, we had ponies and it felt like one big very large family and we were very accustomed there was always sort of an extra plate in the oven an extra seat at the table and that was the kind of lifestyle we had so it was so short and it was busy and at the same time we had to find our own independence within that but I was the only girl and had three boys so I guess that had its sort of pros and cons and I was mad into my horse riding because when you grow up in the middle of the countryside and you can't drive that essentially is your only means of transport or escape so um yeah that's how that's how it worked in those days. Living near Glastonbury near the the festival site you were attending from quite an early age I understand. 
Yes, we were. Um, I think I, I haven't missed a year actually at all since um, since I yeah in, in all the years it's been going on, and um, got involved there working there at quite an early age too. Was very had lots of fun working on the cider bus, which was um, which is owned by the Templees. Before I went on to doing my own projects there. Do you remember taking it all in as you know as a young ish youngish child? How did being there make you make you feel there's some very funny my mother's kept them some very funny accounts that I that I sort of wrote when I was younger about you know naked men and all sorts of things but I, I have one very my earliest memory was chasing a five pound note attached to a piece of string and finding myself face to face with a couple of guys sitting outside their tent in absolute hysterics as I was trying to catch it but you know we had loads of fun in those days I mean it was so easy to kind of access in and out and there was so much going on it was a playground really. And then your your teenage years kind of aligned with a bit of a formative period for the festival as well the the early and kind of mid 90s it really became part of the mainstream. Did you feel a sort of connection or pride in the area as a young adult? It was interesting. From where we were living in those days, there wasn't um, a fence. And um, so we had a kind of, we had the caravan of, of festival goers going past our house. And I remember thinking that that was really exciting um all sorts of really colorful buses I remember on a school run finding some people with a kind of a cow on a lead and in a sort of hedgerow and really colorful in the hippie days you know it was really incredible and then of course as things got into the late 80s 90s actually it was um you had to be much more cautious there was a very different sort of feeling there but our house was full every single year of people who were not only coming to stay, who were working at the festival, but also people on the way out who needed eggs, petrol, a telephone, somewhere to put their head down. So I think, I don't know whether I really sort of remember being proud, but I remember feeling, yes, maybe proud to be part of something that was was very exciting, and very significant, and seemed to be such a portal for so many people's experience. So I was very aware of that. And then of course, as I got older, you know, all your friends want to come and it became a very sort of, you know, you become quite popular, everyone wants to come and park in your field. <laughs> so yes, no, I was very aware. And um, the Eveses have always been very generous and, you know, to locals with their access and really supported them. So we've had a really great relationship with the festival. During that time, during your sort of teenagers, had you discovered a passion for photography at that point? I discovered photography when I was 16, actually doing a black and white photography course but only really as a hobby and in fact it was just the I mean I was enjoying photography and yes I, I'd sort of done we got into it when I was in Peru significantly through university but after university when I was working on the side of us and um, which involved lots of time chatting to people who were propped up against the poles you know having their 20th pint of cider I just had this real you hear these amazing stories from people people who traveled all over the country people who'd come with their five kids they'd saved up for a whole year and I started to realize god I want to get closer to people I want to record these stories a little bit like you but I, I, I did it visually and that's what prompted me to ask the festival if I could have a space where I could do a sort of photographic get a photographic record of the festival goers and I did actually interview many of them um, but for lots of very practical reasons the words weren't included in the book at the end which was quite sad but I mean they gave me a really the kind of introduction to meet the people. We're going to talk a bit about that whole project in a lot more depth 
later on. But I wanted to spend a little bit of time, I suppose, talking about your your time away from the county. Um, so you, you left Somerset first to study and then to do a bit of exploring around the world. You mentioned Peru uh, earlier. So you head off to London and then and then slightly further afield. Uh, I know you've done some traveling Africa as well. During that time living away from home, away from the area, what did you learn about yourself? I, do you know, I just, just to sort of um, rewind a little bit, I actually went for, to boarding school throughout my teens. And I think that that, um, that going away and coming back is really important in defining my relationship with Somerset because I always had a longing to come home. And yes, after school, I did go to Africa for a while and I did go and go to Edinburgh University and to Peru for a year in the middle of that. But I always had this sort of very strong connection with Somerset and the landscape. And I always sort of had this real sense of kind of coming home. And I actually have realized having just been living abroad for two years that that hasn't gone away. But I think being able to step away and come back has been part of my sort of it's formed really the way that I have photographed Somerset and how I sort of keep coming back to see it fresh and see different things and um, yeah I, th- I don't know if that quite answers your question but I suppose your question really is what is, is what I've learned and I think the learning is I mean so much really I mean traveling and being absorbing different cultures and learning different ways and um, studying yeah different kind of customs helps you compare and you know your own and reflect on yeah traditions and rituals that you don't maybe have in your own family um so yes I suppose it's and and life is a constant learning isn't it it's a constant journey so it's hard to pinpoint exactly what or where but I think as a photographer really you know you're constantly with your eyes open and your heart open learning about people and I think that's why I love it so much you mentioned before that you discovered photography as a 16 year old in a small way. How did that and your style evolve while you were uh, traveling? It's interesting when you talk about style because I think that's a really crucial um, point when it comes to photography because initially I was shooting on slide film when I was in my early twenties. My my first sort of real trip was actually all sort of apprenticeship was with a National Geographic photographer in Washington and I was learning on slide film and I really admired a lot of those magnum photographers you know Alex Webb particularly hot light low light a lot of, a lot of that kind of very sort of um, crisp colored sort of light shadow photography and um, I think that when I came back to I'm trying to sort of work out the chronology really because Um, There was a moment when I, post-college, when I was working, doing an internship with Network, which is a photographic agency in London. And I just spent a year, uh, a few months in Burma, where I'd gone on an assignment, again, shooting on slide film. And the head of the agency said, you know, why, why are you going away so much? It's so much more interesting to turn your eye to your own backyard. And it really triggered something in me. And I thought, you're absolutely right. And I was trying to, in those early years, carve out a career in London survive you know chasing the jobs getting out with the portfolio but again I had this constant need to return to Somerset and just to keep shooting and at the time I didn't know if I was shooting I shot in black and white I shot on 35 mil I then got a medium format camera and over the five or six years that I was photographing Somerset in those days 
it was really that in itself was a process of discovery. And I think through that process, I discovered a style of working that then people began to attach to my name. And I have since discovered, although it wasn't premeditated, that that is really something that's very crucial for photographers. There are, there are many photographers out there and people want to know what it is exactly that you do even though you might be able to do many things. You can do interiors, you can do travel, you can do food, you can do portraits, but they like to sort of know what box to put you in when they think of you for jobs. And that's just something I learned. And I think using natural light, my background in sort of art and art history and, and in passionate about paintings and, um, and sort of tones, all of that really informed a style that I then really began to sort of, you know, focus on and specialise, sort of, you know, it came more naturally to me as time went on. And was it, again, I don't, you mentioned about sort of putting photographers in boxes and, and having labels, but I think one of the things that, you know, your work is more focused on people and, and capturing people kind of as they are, so portraits, but not necessarily in a in a setting. It's it's sort of more of a journalistic approach to portraits, isn't it? Yes, I mean, I um, initially, I suppose, there was you know, documentary photography was what inspired me to become a photographer. I wanted to be, I wanted to be a photojournalist. I wanted to tell stories about things that I cared passionately about, and I felt needed to um, have you know, bring greater awareness to these subjects, but. When I started doing photography, there was a lot of magazines with a lot of page space. And so that was kind of where my aspirations were. And I suppose, yes, it was more, it was a, a gentle type of reportage. I didn't set my pictures up. I learned to wait for the moment and that's what I did. Um, but it's interesting your point about putting into boxes because I soon came to react to that. So we hope we can talk about that a bit later. But uh, yes, I think it's a sort of a, a gentle um a reportage really. I for me I feel like you're you're witnessing and you're an you know you're in somebody else's presence and so to capture them at the most truthful and um you know is is the most important thing really. It's a really interesting point because you talk about capturing people and and truth. A lot of the photography that we encounter in a day-to-day -day, uh, experience now is obviously through social media where truth is not necessarily important but appearance and kind of getting the the best possible picture that you can is sort of the objective as well. I'm curious as to your thoughts on kind of I suppose yeah the different mindsets behind those two types of, of capture. Yeah it's a really interesting one. Um... To answer that because I'll be really honest with you I haven't found it very easy adapting to a career on social media and it's something that I still question a lot now in that we all know that Instagram is really a stream of an individual's you know narrative which doesn't necessarily reflect the truth at all and most of us will post pictures on a good day and not on a bad day um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with Instagram. I think it has its place and I think it's hugely useful and helpful and fantastic tool. Um, when Instagram first emerged in 2013, I was probably at the sort of, you know, it was a very good, strong point in my career. I was um, attached to seven agency. I was traveling a lot and I had a commercial agent in Europe and in America and Instagram was introduced and I just sort of thought, and my instinctive reaction was like, I don't wanna, this isn't, this isn't me. And when I, it took me years to get onto Instagram, 
and I have left my Instagram account twice. I have deleted it and I only really rejoined it a couple of years ago, partly because I don't enjoy what it demands of me on a daily basis. And I don't enjoy the way it makes me, um, it forces me to present a side of myself, which I, again, I'm often, is this my most truthful side? Because the way that I have worked is for me, I, I see my photographic journey as my, as my life journey. There's been highs and lows. There's been times of intense work. There's been times of, you know, like rec recoiling almost as you do creative, creatively. Um, it, it can be intense. And before Instagram, you used to do face-to-face -face meetings and personal meetings. And you take your sketchbooks and your Polaroid books and as well as your glossy portfolio. And when you met with someone, you had this opportunity to share really where you were at that point in your creative journey. And now the kind of instant um, posting and the scrolling and and feeling that people aren't really understanding where you are, where, you know, when you post that photo is, um, yeah, it's a strange one for me. And I'm not, you know, I, I understand that we all need to have a presence on Instagram, especially if you want to be a photographer. I'd be very good if I was promoting other people on Instagram. I really would. I would love to do that. But I do, I do find it very difficult. And um, I do look forward to the days when we can be doing much more kind of, you know, person to person connection. But sadly, that doesn't really happen so much anymore because um, because of Instagram, people often go to Instagram to, to look at photographers' work and to commission them. So it has its ups and downs for everybody. You obviously had, you know, that, that successful career, which did involve a lot of traveling, as you, as you said, but also that feeling of wanting to return home. When you eventually did, can you put your finger on what was the tipping point that brought you back to Somerset and and then secondly prompted you to create your first book? So actually when I no when I was shooting Somerset Stories which was my first book I wasn't actually living in Somerset. In those years I was living in London but I had a large van an old bread wagon and I would escape. I mean it was crazy. Sometimes I would do a commission, you know, for a magazine and I would I would drive down, get to Somerset at one o'clock in the morning, and then I would shoot the next day, maybe get back the next night to work the next day. I mean, I was really kind of packing it in. And I think that I realized that in contrast to the commissions that were coming in in London, which was photographing people, you know, personalities for magazines, writers, actors, you know, sports personalities. But when I was going to Somerset, I was just photographing people who were from my own county and their stories really inspired me. And I was really specifically focusing on people who were trying to live on and, and you know, in harmony with the land, people who were growing their own vegetables and having their own sort of small holdings, bringing their children up in nature, which I know now we all talk about very much, but this was, you know, 20 years ago. And that was the story that I wanted to tell. And um, a little bit like you were telling your podcast, you'd meet one person and they say, oh, you must go meet this person or you must go meet this person. So it became a journey that um, just got its claws into me, really. And I couldn't wait to get down there. And it was much more nourishing and fulfilling somehow than sort of treading the streets of London and sort of, you know, begging for work, which is kind of what you do in the early days, sort of going, yep, I can do it. I can do it. And sort of trying to prove yourself. Um, and it did sort of pay off because really that book was probably the most honest and truthful expression of of me 
And then I really had something that I could walk out and say, this is this is me. This is what I do. And this is where I'm from. And the book was really enjoyed and still is. I still get these wonderful emails from people all around the world who just say, oh, I'm just having a moment with my coffee and I'm still loving this book. And it's so heartwarming because it um, was really a very committed journey. You know, I mean, even in those days, I shot it all on film. And when you're being paid very little by the magazines to find the money for the petrol up and down in my very expensive old bread wagon and the processing of all the kind of, you know, medium format film, you know, it was it was definitely a stretch to make it happen. And so um when, and actually, when that book was published, I mean, I remember sort of sobbing and I thought, gosh, you know, it really felt like I'd birthed something really, really um, close to my heart. And, you know, I still wonder, I still think it's one of the best pieces of work that I've ever did, but nothing stood in the way of me in that book. You know, I didn't have my own family. I had the freedom of time and um, and I was hungry, you know, I was really hungry to to build a body of work. What was your your process for you know telling a, a cohesive story or or, um, or series of stories really where where did you start you know it's a really interesting question because for quite a long time I really didn't know what I was doing I mean I used to leave my parents house and go should I go left or right today you know like who am I going to bump into and for a few years it really was just a collection of images of people that I knew, people that they then introduced me. I was looking for people who, like I said, were sort of connected to the land in some way, um, whether they were, you know, farmers or, you know, setting up a, a co-op, um, people who were living on the land who couldn't afford a house. I was, you know, looking kind of workers. We had, my parents grew cider apples and we had people every year coming to kind of live at home and pick the cider apples. And so I loved that whole sense. I used to also do lots of fruit picking as a teenager. So I was kind of aware of the communities that come together for those moments of the harvest. And um, I remember having one moment when I met this amazing woman near Western Supermare. And she was telling me about um, the why, she was explaining to me why she'd chosen the way that she was living and she was saying, you know, this is what I have to pass on. This is, you know, my, my ancestry is who I am and this is what I own and this is what I can pass on to future generations. And I realized that that was the red thread running through the book was really what identity is, is our ownership of who we are and the pride in who we are. And they can be all sorts of sort of rituals and ways of living in that. And that's what made me start really um sort of I don't know it fired me up I remember that drive in my van in the rain and thinking yes this is all beginning to come together and with any photography project you start as such a blank canvas but if you stick with it there is a moment when it all starts to sort of add up and join up and I can see that now in friends of mine and bodies of work you're like you start to fill out and they start to say their own thing independently of you and, and it's really interesting to, to, to watch that. To what extent do you think that the stories that you were sharing through that book are or were unique to Somerset versus, you know, more generally part of rural communities? I think that um, 20 years ago, Somerset, I think, has, um, well, it's got its history and its mysticism and um, Somerset's always been a place that artists have loved to be and I think it's quite a unique county. It's getting much busier now, as we know, but I think that um, it is very unique. And 
I mean, I, I love, I'm passionate about the West Country full stop. So, um, but I do think there is something magical about Somerset. I really do. I think that it's just far enough away from London to not be in the commuter belt, although that may be changing also. And, um, and I just think the topography, just there's so many little hidden nooks and crannies. There's families who've been there working on the same businesses for generations. And I think that's very interesting that one of the great inspirations to the project was I photographed the farmers in our village, the Goulds. And I did a portrait that was five generations of the family and it won an award with the Observer, I think it was, in 2005. And I thought, you know, this is stuff that I really love. Families who are sort of coming back to work with their own families. So I think Somerset is very, is very unique. You talked a little bit about this before, but you'd had exhibitions um, prior to, uh, to Somerset Stories being published. So you're used to seeing your work on display. What's different about it being a book? Yeah, I hadn't actually had many exhibitions. My first exhibition I did um, actually was about Burma in 99. And I did um, an exhibition in London to sort of raise awareness about tourism. I had a very sort of, um, very a brilliant journey there. And I think what's really interesting what happens with a book, well, firstly, the book itself is part of a bigger project. I mean, the book was an edited down version of five years of work and, um, the way that it became a book again was quite magical, but I really put myself in the hands of the publisher and learned. I mean, I didn't know how to make a book then, you know, it was a new experience really. And everything from learning about the paperweight to the type, to where the page numbers go to the format was such an exciting journey. And perhaps I, in that learning process, you know, maybe would the edit be different? I don't know, because it works brilliantly as it does now. But then it got picked up by um, Art and Commerce, who so an agency in America who gave it a sort of an Emerging Talent Award. And then it sort of snowballed and it does its own thing. And so it got into a few photographic festivals and then it got into more, you know, and it just has its own energy. And suddenly the set of prints was sort of traveling around independently of me, really. So I'm not a big one for being able to put my pictures on the wall, I have to be honest with you. But actually when it happens sort of without you making it happen. It's wonderful and it's wonderful to witness it and it's wonderful to witness other people really enjoying the work. And um, so no, it was a really special time when it sort of had its little moment out there. It's also not just other people enjoying the work, it's other people having a glimpse into that particular element of, of life in Somerset. And when it was shown outside of the UK, how did it feel knowing that, you know, people in different parts of the world are getting that glimpse uh, and seeing those stories from this particular corner. Yes, well, when you asked me that question, actually, it takes me back to in 2009, which was a year after the book got published. Um, I was very lucky to be asked to exhibit my work at the New York Photo Fair. Um, John Levy, who had actually written the foreword to the book, he um, ran the Photo 8 magazine in a gallery in London, and he was very supportive of the project. And he asked, um, he asked me to join a few of the photographers. They did a, um, his exhibition that he'd have been asked to curate was called Home. So I went out there and I remember having to stand up in a sort of in an auditorium with about 400 people and these sort of pictures of chickens behind me thinking, 
you know, I think it was my, you know, the second time I'd been to New York and thinking, God, this is just so Congress, really. I couldn't believe, you know, talking about people living on the land. But again, I think it touches a nostalgia in so many people, you know, this sort of just, just children being in harmony with nature, in harmony with animals. And the light in Somerset, so evocative and quite romantic, really. You know, I mean, I love those days when the clouds are quite grey and you get that luminosity coming through. It always makes you go, ah, oh, you know, it's one of those days. Um, but I think people enjoyed it. I think maybe it was refreshing, something so simple. It was very simple, really, the concept, you know. And I think that people really enjoy that too. So I don't think it matters where they're from. I think the simplicity of the things that matters most, you know, which is... Yeah, it's, which is being, which is family, belonging, how we grow our food and all these things. So, yeah. As a new feature for this season, we're showcasing Somerset's musical talent with tracks from local acts in each podcast. Tenpenny Fools is a collaboration between Adam Lipinski, Nick Rowland and Chris Palmer, inspired by a mutual respect in each other's musical field. Rapper Nick Rowland and singer-songwriter Adam Lipinski developed a working relationship which stemmed from their late-night listening sessions to writing and recording together. Their latest album was released in February of this year. From Money for Old Rope, this is Nowhere. Growing up they said I was a crazy child all my time is spent, but still they raise me proud I couldn't help but break or bend the rules I raised hell when all my friends were fools I'm heading somewhere I'm heading nowhere fast I'm going somewhere I'm heading nowhere fast I said the wheels are turning and they're moving fast I take my shots like it's a shoeing cans Left at the station she was wanting to see If I'd wait patient or just wander free I'm heading somewhere I'm heading nowhere fast I'm going somewhere I'm heading nowhere fast A flip of the coin and then I'm heading home She's a heroine to my methadone The coin span around Drop from the sky It crashed at the ground And then it stopped on its side I'm heading somewhere I'm heading nowhere fast I'm going somewhere I'm heading nowhere fast
the festival is obviously a hugely diverse and eclectic gathering of people. It has any number of layers of, of appeal uh, to, to photographers, to any creatives. This, is, this might be a little bit of a tricky uh, question, but can you summarise what magic it brings to you in, in what way? I think for me, it's the wealth of different people from all over the world that come together in one time to celebrate music, theatre, performing arts. It's an exceptionally unique event that happens. And as a result of that, every year you have very magical experiences down there. If you're open to meeting people or, you know, seeing new things, um, I feel so fortunate to have grown up next to it and to have had the opportunity to go every year. It's definitely um, had a huge influence on my life um, from a young girl watching, you know, the hippie caravans kind of like all go past our front door to working on the side of us to, you know, then shooting the project for so many years down there. And then since then, even going, just going with my own kids to the kids field and being a, you know, a punter like everybody else, you know, I think every year has had its own magic and its own journey. And um, yeah, long may the festival continue. Hopefully we can all be back there soon. <laughs> In the years that you were on site with your growing studio, you had the opportunity to take portraits of Leonard Cohen, Dame Shirley Bassey, Amy Winehouse, as well as, you know, the, the as you say, the punters, the revelers themselves. There must have been some real kind of pinch yourself moments. Oh, hugely. And actually that idea was brought in by um, a, a local artist who's also a great friend of the Eves's called Candice Behooth. She, in 2006, I think, so about four years into the project, was really passionate about the project and sort of said she'd like to come and art direct. And she was the one who said, why are you just photographing the workers and, and the festival goers? Wouldn't it be fun to get some of the performers? And at the time I wasn't sure, but um, I knew how difficult it was going to be to secure that permission. But she brilliantly secured the access to the artist on the pyramid stage. And I worked on securing the access to the artist on the other stage. We only we just chose one stage each. It would have been impossible to get everyone. And so it's really credit to her that I was able to photograph Leonard Cohen, which I have to say is it was a massive, you know, pinch myself moment. And I think my hand was shaking so much when I photographed. Um, Jay-Z and Lily Allen and Shirley Bassey. I mean, it was pouring with rain when she came off stage and I put down a bit of red carpet that just led straight to my studio and she sort of wandered in, not really knowing where she was and I got a couple of frames and um, and then she kind of wandered out. And then on the other stage, the, the form of the jazz stage, which is what I was working on, photographed some of my favourite kind of, you know, reggae artists that I've been huge fans of and I was incredibly lucky to, to get, I think, five frames I got of Amy Winehouse and um, before she she was sort of went off she's obviously it was post her performance and um, you know you spent I probably spent on average three to four hours waiting for each artist and probably got on average three to four minutes with each one so that was the kind of commitment it took and um, it was always a pinch myself moment and I think the only person the only artist that ever said no was Manu Chow he said that he wasn't a fan of festivals with walls and he didn't want to be, um, you know, photographically involved in, you know, in the project. But he did invite me to sit 
by his fire and drink whiskey and listen to him and his friends play music for a few hours. So that was a pretty good substitute just after a kind of four hour wait to meet him and um, had a great night. (laughs) Actually, you know, it was actually because of that aspect of the project, the performers, that I was given a solo show at the National Portrait Gallery because they were obviously what the images of the National Portrait Gallery um, wanted to exhibit. So no, it was uh, it was great fun and took a lot of patience from from both myself and Candice and tenacity really, you know, sticking with the dream and making it happen. How did you decide which of your portraits went into the book? My God, that was an agonising process and um, a little bit like Somerset Stories, as you can imagine, there was thousands more images than there were, um, than, than there are in the book. And with all of the images was a text quote. Um, I lived with those pictures, I would say, for a long time. I, I would lie them out at the time I was working away a lot and I would put them on the floor in hotel rooms and resequence them and take photos and... I did that for a long time. I mean, they literally were my friend that came everywhere with me. (laughs) And, you know, learning, I I guess I'd done Somerset stories at that point, but really looking at the sequence of images and the double pages and also trying to take on a bit of a journey through the festival and also try and put more environmental scenes in it just to sort of break it up and give the contrast of the white backdrop to the sort of the muddy, crowded, you know, crazy scenes. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the pictures are probably under my pillow, on the floor of my bed, all over the kitchen table for months and months and months and months. Um, and eventually you just have to make a decision and you have to be ruthless and you have to cut the pictures out and not go back to them. So there was lots of disappointed friends who didn't make the cut. <laughs> um, but that just, you know, I sent every single year, I'd set up a website with all of the images on and anybody who was in the book had access to a free print they just had to get in touch with me and anybody who got photographed was able to buy a book at a 50 percent discount from the publisher so that was a lovely thing to be able to give back you mentioned the project became a a solo exhibition at the national portrait gallery um it's also been shown in melbourne new york uh and uh i know you mentioned that mulberry was supportive of uh, the publication as well so they put it up in uh in their stores around the world did you ever imagine when you were in that teepee putting putting up paper that your work would eventually end up you know being that broadly shared around the world I mean not for a second you know partly because when you're putting up the paper in the teepee all you're thinking is god how do I keep these lights dry you know everything's going to blow friends are you know all off partying and you're there you know with your gaffer tape and your cameras and the years of when Hasselblad Blad sponsored me, I was so paranoid about having, you know, £30,000 worth of equipment on me that every night I would walk the sort of 45 minutes up through up the hill through the mud back home because I just couldn't even bear to sleep with it in my caravan. I just thought it's just too much. It's too much. So, no, in those days, I mean, gosh, no, I didn't think about that at all. I had no idea. And I think that's the same with any project. You know, you, you can't think about the outcome you can't think about the end and um I try hard not not to do that with projects these days you just have to think about what you're doing in that moment and there are many projects I start that seem to sort of you know just die a slow death and don't go anywhere and there are some that just 
don't leave you alone even when you're fed up with them and you have to just follow that intuition and keep plugging on and I've been at breaking point so many times with my projects and those times you think I'm mad I'm going to give up I've run out of money why should I keep on going and uh, it's really wonderful when the universe kind of rewards you for that for that hard work and that commitment and I think um, I always tell people you know well when I've done you know helped out at universities and photography colleges and I think you know it tests you it takes you the point that you think you're going to you give up is the point that you have to push through and that's when the magic starts to happen. So you have your own young children now what elements of that childhood that you described in your experience do you want them to to go through as well being close to nature is really important to me being able to be free um being able to be aware of the cycle of the seasons um to feel that they're constantly discovering you know our beautiful planet in whatever small way is really important to me um to be able to feel brave independent and i think parenting takes you on a whole new journey so you know, you're still learning a huge amount about yourself um, as you parent. So there are aspects of my childhood that I try to pass on and perhaps aspects that I don't need to and just let them discover it themselves. You talk about discovering uh, the planet. You've literally done that um, over the last couple of years by by moving your family uh, outside of the UK for a short period of time. What have been some of the highlights of that time? My husband and I moved back to Somerset full time when um, in 2014, just before the birth of my first daughter. And we always he's also from the West Country. And we always had this dream that we would have that sort of go and live abroad chapter. Um, I speak a couple of languages. I've always felt that's been a huge asset to me. But I really wanted my children to just experience like I had just. I don't know, different ways, meet different people. And we wanted the adventure too. And we were very fortunate. Um, we actually were finding it quite difficult to keep everything going when we were in Somerset with, with, with two small children as freelancers. And then my husband got offered a job for two years in Puglia in Southern Italy. And um, we literally left in a heartbeat. We packed up our house, rented it out, and we were there within you know a month, I think, my husband started work. So there wasn't much time to think about it. We knew those opportunities wouldn't um, come by very often. And I mean, so, I mean, I've really only just got back from that two years. And um, it was a dream to live near the sea, which I've never done. And, and you know, I wanted to learn Italian, which I, I sort of gave it that my best shot. But um, again, there was a freedom there that I think my children really profited from, you know, life by the ocean. Um, meeting they, they were children are so young and adaptable at that age they were three and one when we went away they didn't really need much more than us in, in a happy home we took our dogs with us and you know settled in our time away coincided with um coronavirus kicking off a year ago um obviously in italy it was an intense time for the for the first um well for the whole time that we were there um so that was a huge learning curve um and I think like many people surrendering to the circumstances um, and 
I suppose, you know, and I became really everything that you are to your children in the sort of lack of any community or family or friends around you, which we didn't have really at that point. In fact, my daughters and I didn't see another human being for the whole three months of the first lockdown. My husband was going to work and coming back. And um, at moments I tried to photograph that journey, but actually I realized I just needed to be really present with them and present with myself in a different way. And um, I didn't often feel very inspired to pick up the camera. And that was really difficult. It was the first time I had this life experience where it wasn't always um, a calling for me to pick up the camera. So there's been a huge in that. And um, yes, it's great to be home. And I suppose now that we're settled back here, it's really lovely to remember, you know, remembering all the excitements and the highlights. Puglia is a beautiful part of the world. And we ate very well for a couple of years and we met some wonderful people. And um, I really think that the children have really flourished from that experience. So, no, it was, it was fantastic. There's a similarity, I suppose. Puglia is very, there's a lot of agriculture there. There's a lot of uh, emphasis on the produce from the land as well. Uh, so I suppose in terms of parallels, there is that with, uh, with Somerset and the area that you moved to. Absolutely. And I, that's what I did photograph a lot. You know, I would find myself going to these masserias, which was these sort of, you know, family run farms where very often still three generations of the family are all living and working together. And I would meet these people through the school friends of my daughter. And um, they live, they're very hardworking, like you say, working very closely um, on the land and we'd go once a week to the markets to buy all of our vegetables and the produce is fantastic. My husband was also um, making olive oil and wine so we were meeting lots of producers um, in that way and you know really learning the Italian way of living which is sort of going to your local vegetable shop and fish shop sort of almost daily you know not doing the big supermarket shops so and I think that you know I'm very interested in you know our, our relationship with food um, you know, I'm, I'm very into us eating kind of, you know, as naturally as locally sourced as possible, as seasonal as possible. And so that was, you know, a, a great time actually to really delve into that a bit more. But no, I was really inspired actually. They're very, um, very hardworking police and um, it's a beautiful landscape. Yeah. And happy cows, happy livestock everywhere. I really noticed that, you know, you'd see these beautiful cows with big bells around their necks in forests and I mean, it was so breathtaking, the whole place. You're stopping to photograph all the time. As you mentioned, you are back in the UK now, but not quite in Somerset. So, um, well, like like everybody, well, you know, in the last year, the winds have uh, changed our course and we are up in Hay-on-Wye, which is really exciting. Um, this is, my father is from, from Hay-on-Wye and we've had a little family bungalow here that we've Airbnb'd for years and um, it was sitting empty, needs some love. And we have decided to continue our journey and come up here for a year, two years maybe, um, before we return to Somerset. Um, I can't say that there was any, I can remember any significant mo moment of making that decision. Um, our house was rented out in Somerset over the winter and um, Initially, pre-COVID, we thought we might go and spend that time post my husband's job in going off to India or somewhere exciting. But so we decided to come to Hay-on-Wye and we realised that we've loved it so much, we're going to stay here for a little bit. But the great thing is we're only two and a half hours away from Somerset. So, um, you know, we're so close, really. 
And actually, I'm very excited. I've, I'm starting a really lovely project up here. And I feel that this could be, um, probably this is where I'm meant to be now for the next stage for my work. Can you share any any hints or secrets about, about the projects that you're working on? Absolutely. Well, I'm very, we're living right by the Wye River. And um, the Wye is somewhere I've been swimming. We've been coming here since I was tiny, obviously. I was actually, I'm actually living in a house that I spent the first four years of my life in. And we're five minutes walk from the river. And in this last lockdown, just watching the river and the light change on it every day and the river rise and flood and go back down again and actually really learning about the threat that the, the British rivers are under, you know, the pollution threat. Um, and also now because of, well, there's a huge sort of change in farming up here. There's much less sheep farming and much more poultry farming. Um, sadly, the runoff from the poultry farms is polluting the rivers a lot. And um, anyway, I've been diving into river life and I'm really excited to explore the why. So that's um, a project that I'm, I'm super excited at the moment. My, I'm quite limited to how far I can go, but I'll be um, <laughs> spreading out a bit further soon. Um, I've also very interestingly um, been working on a story that um, I'm a, I've been adapting from a book, which I am hoping to tell um, with moving image through film. And that is to be set and based up here. And that has kept me really busy in the times that I haven't been able to travel, haven't been able to photograph. And, you know, that sort of creative hunger that I've had to sort of do something. So that's beginning to um, sort of, I don't know, definitely got some momentum at the moment and I think that that's something that I've really discovered you know really being so dedicated to my photography for 20 years which and really loving that medium but the medium is changing and you know we all have to change with with that but also remembering that you know creativity is a life journey and I've actually in Italy I got very into pottery and all of these different techniques and mediums ask us to slow down or learn something different or observe differently. And um, so writing and painting at the moment a little bit, I think these are all, they're all fueling perhaps, you know, my, my next chapter. So I don't can't exactly say what it's going to be, but it all feels like it's heading slowly in the right direction and be delighted to keep you posted. Venetia, before we go, where is it best for people to find out more about you, um, about your previous work, the work that you're doing uh, now and kind of anything else that they want to about you? Well, my website's um, a definite place to go to, although um, it's had a bit of neglect, I have to say, in this last year of COVID. And, but I'm sure everyone says that, but I am, I am planning to give that some more focus. And um, obviously if people ever are, want to get in touch um, personally, um, then I'm always I'm contactable and my information is on my website too, so yeah. Venetia, thank you so much for, uh, for chatting with us um, and, and sharing your story. You've been a delightful guest. Oh, it's been lovely to be here, Lewis. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. If you liked it, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on social media at Somerset Stories or email hello at somersetstories.com. Music on all Somerset Stories productions is created by Jazar. You can be found at betterwithmusic.com. See you next time.